I'm back. Hi, how are you? I've missed talking to you through this podcast. Oh boy, this has been a long break. Okay, gird your loins because this is going to be one big intro. Um, at the end of February this year, I was feeling overwhelmed and decided to take some mental health leave. Then COVID lockdowns happened, anti-racism protests happened, and the whole world was thrown into chaos. Some bad chaos, but some necessary and good chaos. During this time, everybody's nerves were fried. And the last thing I wanted to do was make a podcast about millennials' problems, am I right? Um, But things are evening out slowly, you know, things are coming back to a, a better place, and I'm recharged, so let's do this, uh, but just a little differently. In the future, there is a possibility that you'll hear some advertising on this podcast. I've done my best to painstakingly filter ad categories so that any ads that might play align with my personal values. I don't have all the information about this as yet, but when I do, I will tell you. But just keep in mind, you may hear some ads on this podcast in the future. The other thing is, from now onwards, episodes will be fortnightly. This seems to be a sustainable schedule for me at present. Um, There are a few other little changes coming up, but I will tell you more when I can. Okay, one more thing. With so much recent talk of structural racism and white supremacy, we here in Australia must not forget that the worst race-related discrimination historically was and currently is committed against Indigenous Australians, the traditional owners of this land that we live on. Public discourse and mainstream news media present a horribly biased and inaccurate picture of the real issues that First Nations communities are facing. The only way for us to educate ourselves about what is happening and what needs to be done is to look for information outside the skewed mainstream. This means follow Indigenous writers and activists and journalists on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, go to protests. Educate yourselves about the history of Australia from non-white sources and contribute to advocacy groups like Black Rainbow and Healing Hands and just be aware that the information given to us in textbooks, government sources, our own social media bubbles, it's not always the full picture. As a South Asian woman, I'm calling on all my fellow brown folk, the Indians, Pakistanis, Nepalis, Bangladeshis, Sri Lankans, Please, we will never be rid of racism against ourselves if we cannot help end racism against everyone everywhere. The only way that society can be equitable is if me and you put in the effort to listen, understand and support those who are fighting for change. Now on to today's episode. There is so much to process about the way COVID has changed humanity, and exposed humongous cracks in our political and social systems, in our public discourse, in our news media. I suspect that this pandemic is going to be a base note in many podcast episodes to come. So this episode, I'm talking to Tim Losodo, the founder and national director of Democracy in Colour. 
Democracy in Colour is an Australian advocacy group for racial and economic justice, and they campaign to end systemic racism. It's led by people of colour. These past few months, Tim and his team have been working to expose how COVID has disproportionately affected people of colour, immigrants, temporary visa holders and marginalised sections of society. So this conversation is about Tim's work in this regard. I'm not going to summarize it here because it is a very interesting and dense conversation. And Tim, as the expert, says everything there is to say. But I will say that please listen to it because it is a very important conversation. P.S. On a completely different mic setup, I'm just hopping in to let you know that this episode was recorded in June. And since then, things have changed a little bit in Victoria with regard to the COVID situation. So just keep that in mind. Also, it was recorded on Skype. So predictably, the sound quality is rather crap. But I hope you'll enjoy it nevertheless. This podcast is recorded on Wurundjeri land. This is Amrutha and you're listening to Heckin' Concerned Podcast. Heck, heck, heck. Hi, Tim, and welcome to Heck and Concern podcast. Great. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's really exciting to have you, and it's, uh, I'm, I'm honored that I could get a hold of you. You're a very busy man. Uh, no, no, no. We're, we're all, you know, just doing our best yeah. um, in, uh, you know, it's become a cliche to say unprecedented times, but it seems like we are in those times, and it's all requiring us to do our, do our bit. It is a cliche, but... What else can you say? It, the times uh, keep evolving. Every mm. day, every week is different from the last in terms of what's happening in the world. Um, yeah, uh, I can't remember who said it, but you know, some, something about um, there are decades where nothing happens, and then there are like weeks where decades happen, and it feels like. <laughs> That's very um, we're in one of those moments. It does feel like that. Yeah, and if nothing else, this just goes to show us that, uh, you know, business as usual, the status quo is not working, or rather it is working as it was built to, um, but how it was built to work doesn't serve the vast majority of people. In fact, it exploits our bodies, our aspirations, our dignity uh, at the perpetual expense, you know, um, uh, you know just to serve the interests. Of a, of a billionaire class um, that uh, doesn't care about us. Um, so that should just be further evidence uh, that we need to uh, facilitate, you know, structural and systemic change um, and get into that. Well, absolutely. Um, I think the Australian government, the recent government, has a history of telling us that uh, our needs, our emotional needs, our physical needs, our fight for justice is not as important as business as usual all the way from the prime minister scolding children for participating in climate marches or for caring about um, the safe schools program. Or even now uh, we've got Matthias Coleman threatening to take away the job seeker uh, payments for people that participate in Black Lives Matters rallies in Australia. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of, you know, ridiculous, you know, this, this, the the modus operandi of this government is ridiculousness, it's hypocrisy, it's double standards, uh, it's racism, it's a whole bunch of different things. So nothing super surprising from them. If nothing else, we live in a country where we cannot actually be uh, in any way persecuted for speaking out against our government. 
So that's... Well, subtle persecution. Uh, well, subtle, you know, the, yes, yeah. What, what you just mentioned was an example of, uh, you know, a form of, of, of persecution for speaking out for uh, on, on what people believe in, this idea that you can criminalise poverty, that if you um, decided to uh, attend a, a Black Lives Matter, you know, protest, um, you could be at risk or you could be threatened with having uh, your safety net stripped from you. That is definitely a form of, you know, criminalising free speech and criminalising political expression uh, and, uh, 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 you know, the, the right to, to come together in groups um, to agitate. Uh, and uh, uh, so we might not see it as explicitly as in uh, some uh, more authoritarian states, uh, but it's certainly here um, uh, a little bit more, you know, under the hood. Yeah, absolutely. Now that you say it, it's, it's so clear how uh, government's priorities really uh, show the kind of um, freedoms that people uh, people actually really enjoy, and and we that's what Australia is discovering is that a big section of the population doesn't really enjoy the freedoms that many others take for granted. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely, that's right. I was uh, I've been feeling quite sad to read how during the COVID-19 situation, a lot of Indigenous communities are having a real cash flow problem. Um, first of mm. all, tourism and art sales have dwindled and that has really affected um, the income of some um, people. But also um, things like, for example, in some communities, there's a cashless debit card that is used. Yes. Um, and it, it's becoming really hard because they can't withdraw cash on it. And at the same time, um, Stimulus payments or uh, government support is is getting blocked up and things yes. like that. And it, the COVID nineteen situation has exposed really yes. harshly the racial and socioeconomic inequalities in the world and in Australia, hasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to recognise that COVID nineteen hasn't necessarily created. Uh, uh, inequalities. It's, as you said, the virus has exposed pre-existing injustices in society and it's exacerbated those pre-existing injustices. Um, and there's a whole variety of different um, ways in which it's done that. You know, you can start with uh, the racialized narrative around coronavirus back before this was uh, uh, considered, you know, a pandemic globally and, and treated seriously in Australia back in January this year and even late last year. We had people exploiting uh, what was a public health issue at the time to justify the racist beliefs they've always had. You know, we had a whole narrative that, that vilified all Asians as a disease risk. Um, there were calls to ban Chinese immigration, you know, blaming Chinese people for the virus. There were hoax health alerts in Queensland advising people to avoid suburbs that had high Chinese populations. We had two major newspapers um, early this year label coronavirus as, as the Chinese virus. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, like, that, that's not something that COVID-19 created. Again, no. it's just something that it exposed and exacerbated that Australia has a very long history of xenophobia. Now, one of the first pieces passed post-Federation, what we now know as the what we now know as the white Australia policy, was explicitly designed to prevent Chinese migration. And a and hundred years later, we have this feverish discourse that invokes fear of anything Chinese, whether the immigration, technology or property ownership. Uh, and that's resulted in a huge spike in uh, racial vi vi violence, you know, mm. words mean things. And 
uh, racist framing enables racism. And we've seen a spike in racial abuse online, uh, in the streets, in public transport and shopping centres and workplaces all over the place. Uh, and so that's, you know, one example, the racialized narrative. There's um, other, other examples, you know, you, you think about migrant workers in this country is, is a good example that migrant workers do some of the most dangerous and, and low paid work uh, in this country. Mm. Uh, and uh, they, they earn poverty wages. Uh, they work under exploitative conditions. They aren't offered workplace benefits or mm-hmm. have health care, paid sick leave or income support. Uh, and so they're more likely to be forced to work if they're sick. They, they have depressed wages and they can't afford to physically distance if you can't pay the rent or you can't put food on the table. Um, but not only that, they also have a high exposure, um, high risk of exposure to the virus because of the industries they work in and also because of the sort of living situations they're in. Absolutely. Um, a lot so of them live in tenement-like conditions, don't they, in cramped right. conditions. Um, and yep. a lot of them are doing, as you said, work that um, like delivery or transportation-based work that puts them yes. in contact with more people and they a lot of them do work that others um in Australia don't like doing because it's high risk that's right and so I think there's uh, a lot of hypocrisy around how they've been treated uh you know they do they do frontline work that keeps this country running whether that's uh you know health age childcare services whether it's cleaning you know domestic or commercial cleaning whether it's hospitality um whether it's uh you know picking and packing the food we eat cleaning our spaces construction care services and yet they've been cruelly excluded from um, the government's COVID support. There are one, more than 1.1 million you know, temporary visa holders, international students, undocumented migrant workers and people seeking asylum that have been excluded from JobKeeper. And so um, whilst this country has been happy to build uh, a migration system that has been reliant on the exploitation of an impoverished underclass of migrant workers over the past few decades, as soon as we hit uh, a crisis, Uh, And it's time for this country to show a little bit of solidarity and to pay back uh, uh, these these workers. Uh, We wash our hands of them Mm. and we treat them as if they don't exist. You know, the education, um, uh, our education industry in this country, the university sector in this country would not exist without international students. Absolutely. Uh, They rely on international students to make all their money. That's right. Uh, and tourism so, and hospitality industries rely on international students to function. That's right. Uh, so to work in, in heavily exploited jobs that, that they pay often way below um, the, the minimum wage. Mm. Um, and yet uh, they have been excluded from, from, from uh, JobKeeper. So this is just another example of, um, of a pre-existing inequality that has been exposed and exacerbated by COVID-19. How our government you know, who our government views as quote-unquote Australian, as a citizen, as worthy of support, um, is has been exposed and exacerbated by this crisis. Yeah. Uh, for example, a lot of international students accept cash-in-hand payments for the jobs that they do. That's a form of exploitation. But once again, the onus of um, of finding better work or doing different kinds of work is placed on them rather than on the employers who take advantage of... Um, temporary visa holders and international students, and uh, this this idea that uh, when they come to Australia, they're expected to be able to provide for themselves. Um, it's uh, this sort of rhetoric. Just you know, this is reinforced when p- they make demands for for support from the government, and yet they're welcomed with the and, and their exploitation is allowed so happily in other times when there's no other crisis happening. 
Um, it's, it's yeah, really unfair. It's, it's, it's hypocrisy uh, yeah. that this country is happy to build a vast amount of its wealth mm. off the backs of the labour, the exploited labour of people of colour, of migrant workers. And yet when a global pandemic hits, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime global pandemic hits, this country won't provide even the most basic supports, well, yeah. the federal government at least, the state governments and some local governments have been stepping up, but the federal government at least won't even provide the most basic support um, to these folks. Mm. Uh, and the whole narrative around it, you know, again, goes back to expose the broader problem with the, you know, economic system, that value is, is assigned and associated uh, to your, your uh, you know, your, your economic output, uh, that you're only worthy of support um, insofar that you're, uh, you contribute economically. Uh, and, and again, that's sort of another thing that's been exposed. We can talk about racialized policing. That's another thing that's been exposed um, by COVID-19, not created. It's just been exposed and exacerbated. Mm. Um, you know, we've had physical distancing measures that have no doubt saved lives, um, but so that have sometimes been applied in a discriminatory manner. Um, there's a disproportionate number of fines have been issued in areas largely populated by Aboriginal people and migrants. There was analysis of New South Wales fines, which I think is is the only state that has sort of public data around this by the Saturday paper mm-hmm. in April uh, that found fines predominantly issued were predominantly issued in Western Sydney, which is a, an area of Sydney that is a high uh, community of colour population. Um, about 50, 15% of all fines were in just three local government areas, Liverpool, Canterbury, Bankstown and Fairfield, high um, migrant areas. Uh, and those areas just represented just 5% of recorded COVID cases. So you've got 15% of, of all fines in, in areas that represented 5% of recorded COVID cases. And you compare that to local government areas around Bondi Beach. So very affluent area, yeah. predominantly white, mm. which recorded 15% of New South Wales cases, but had only 1.8% of infringements. So there's a huge discrepancy there. Mm. Uh, and again, you know, it's not something new. Uh, racialized policing has been a, 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 a hallmark uh, of policing in this country, like policing everywhere, really. Uh, uh, but uh, again, it's just another example of how COVID-19 is exposing, you know, these pre-existing um, inequalities. If we talk about economic value, yes. um, as you were saying before, so for example, there's a very large uh, investment in Melbourne CBD uh, development from Chinese investors, uh, real estate. And at that time, that investment is welcome because it contributes to the economic um, growth of the city. And yet people, Chinese people, or even people from across Asia were targeted uh, in these horrible racist attacks by um, public media and by people. And there was such little action taken by the government to safeguard their dignity, their safety, um, so money is yep, welcome. That's right. As long as they're bringing in money, that's okay. But don't care about them otherwise. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I, again, it's just exposed the the underlying uh, sort of you know driving motive of our economic system that you only have value in our society mm. um, when you're contributing uh, economically. You know when. Uh, your value is tied and associated um, to your ability to produce capital. And that's it. So I, before we move on, I just, I'm curious about something. So I want to ask you, how did you come to um, establish Democracy in Colour? 
Well, Democracy in Colour is a racial and economic justice organisation led by people of colour. We do two main things. We do political advocacy around economic fairness and anti-racism. Uh, and the second thing we do is a lot of leadership and training programs designed to strengthen the political voice of people of colour. So we're a startup. We were started uh, just over two years ago. And we were started to address three gaps that we saw in the anti-racism space. The first one being that, you know, most work that happens in the anti-racism space right now is education, welfare-based um, work, and that's very important. Uh, but we saw a big gap in, in terms of political advocacy. We wanted to create a new organisation that contested power in the political arena um, on behalf of communities of colour. Uh, the second gap was that, you know, this, this space is very white um, and post uh, the, the ironically, you know, the anti-racism space uh, um, as is symptomatic of, of the broader NGO space um, is dominated by white-led organisations or even entirely white comprised organisations. And we thought it was important that a new racial justice organisation that was actually led by people who experience racial justice, that that organisation was started. And the third gap we identified was that we saw a, a real need for more work that tackled racism, racism from a structural perspective. Mm. Uh, and we're an explicitly anti-capitalist organisation because our analysis around racism very much lies um, within this idea that uh, we operate within a broken economic system that relies on um, uh, weaponising race and weaponising racism to get working people to point the finger of blame at each other, to shout at each other, so that we're not shouting at the broken rules that screw us all over, that exploit our bodies, our dignity, uh, our aspirations uh, 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 to the, for the benefit uh, of, of, of a billionaire class. So I, um, everyone is, is waking up to the fact that capitalism is, is quite broken the way, the way it's functioning in the large part of the world right now. Um, do you think that democracy, uh, do you personally think that democracy and capitalism need each other? Oh, no, definitely not. I think capitalism perverts democracy. I think, look, democracy is fundamentally, you know, the promise of democracy is that inequality of resource can be breached by equality of voice, this idea that everybody has the same voice. And that is not the case here in Australia. And it's certainly not the case, to, you know, taken to an extreme in the US um, where money is seen as, as free speech. Um, and, you know, it's not the case here because we have the perversion of democracy by money and politics, by, uh, by big business, by lobbyists um, who walk the halls of Canberra or Spring Street or wherever. Uh, uh, and so uh, I think the, the two are, are, are actually quite incompatible uh, because uh, we've got one, uh, you know, that that's enables access to decision makers in fact not just enables access to decision makers enables you to become a decision maker based off how much how, how much money you have um, uh, your access to resources you know the you look at the fossil fuel lobby um, and the revolving door between you know not just advisors in senior parliamentary offices and senior ministerial offices who then go back into the fossil fuel industry and then vice versa. But actual politicians who go back into the fossil fuel industry uh, uh, shortly after retiring from public office, democracy is not going to survive under, under capitalism. We, 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 you know, it's, it's not a ma matter of like whether they need each other. They definitely don't. 
but actually they're quite incompatible. Mm. Well, I was going to build up to this question because this is a big question, but we're there already. So what what is a new kind of economic system that is good that you'd like to see? Sure. Look, I, I think, uh, you know, our current system, I think we live in a system where growth is the sole commandment, right? It's a system that treats us all like property, that turns us into profit and loss calculators, that sees us as numbers on somebody's spreadsheet. It's, it's a system that fundamentally brutalizes, humiliates, and dehumanizes people. Um, and fundamentally, it's a system that prioritizes accumulation of profit over everything, over life itself. Uh, and I think we're seeing, uh, you know, COVID is, is, a, is a sort of great, terrible example of this in action where our economic system is willing to sacrifice life in the interests of profit. This whole idea of not um, uh, going into lockdown, of trying to delay lockdown as much as possible, when we know that that's what's required to uh, uh, save lives um, and to, to you know, stem the spread of this pandemic. Uh, there were people and commentators um, not necessarily, you know, that, that narrative thankfully wasn't so embedded here, but definitely in the US. Um, uh, there were people and commentators there um, uh, saying, you know, it was okay for people to die. Uh, basically, you know, making this argument that um, uh, there are a, there's such thing as an acceptable number of deaths. Uh, and we can see that quite clearly in, in analysis. You know, there was analysis done by Dr. Anthony Fauci um, uh, who's the head of the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and one of the, the, the main folks on Trump's uh, coronavirus task force. Uh, and then according to analysis that he did, um, had mitigation guidelines been put into effect in the U.S. just one week earlier, so in March 9 instead of March 16, 60% of U.S. COVID-19 deaths would have been prevented. So we're talking about you know tens of thousands of people who would still be alive if the narrative in the US uh, uh, didn't, you know, see, wasn't focused around, you know, how, you know, this, uh, protecting the stocks or protecting, you know, the, the interests of uh, millionaires and billionaires or big mega corporations, mm. uh, but was actually about protecting life. Mm. The current pandemic has exposed this idea that capitalism is, is fundamentally just about profit over everything, including life itself. Mm. Um, and we didn't really need, you know, COVID-19 to tell us that. You know, you look, at the, you look at our planet, right? We're tearing our planet apart. There have been you know, five major extinction-level events and species in recorded fossil history. We're in the sixth now, and it's not coming from some asteroid or, uh, you know, some natural phenomena. It's coming from us. From humans. us, yeah. We're driving extinction levels to a height not seen in 66 million years. We're driving ourselves to the precipice of, of climate catastrophe. Um, inequality is spiraling out of control. You know, like we were sort of saying earlier, that the, that the only way a system like this survives, um, one that fundamentally screws over the majority of people for the benefit of a tiny minority, is by manipulating, dividing those people, uh, you know, by, by, weaponizing, by, by weaponizing race. Mm. So to answer your original question around what is a... What does an ideal world or an ideal economy look like? Uh, I think it's one that's that's not those things. I mean, you know, we can have a, a conversation around um, what an ideal economy looks like until the cows come home, and 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 you know, lots of people would have many great ideas around that. But there's there's one fundamental, you know, and I'm not going to profess that I have all of those ideas. But the fundamental fact is that business as usual can't continue 
uh, that it's broken. Our system is broken. That's an incontrovertible fact. And I think uh, uh, an ideal economy to, to me is one where, you know, the things you need to live a meaningful life are afforded to everybody, that everybody has access to universal education, that everybody has access to, to housing, that everybody has access to clean, affordable energy, that everybody has access to a well-paid, unionized, meaningful job, mm. that, um, uh, you know, people live um, lives of purpose mm. that they, uh, you know, don't feel like they have to um, enslave themselves to a nine to five, you know, 40, 50, 60 hour job that they hate um, just to live, you know, just to survive, just to pay rent. And put- well, I guess if the progress of a, a country is judged by growth, as you pointed out before, we're just obsessively growth focused, uh, economic growth, then other parameters of health are not taken into yes. account. As you said, well-being, emotional well-being, spiritual well-being, I mean, even basic physical well-being and housing. Does everybody have yep. a safe place in which they can be, um, you know? So That's right. Um, it, I, actually, today I got an email from the Victorian Chamber of Commerce saying, uh, we're trying to put pressure on Premier Daniel Andrews of Victoria to, uh, you know, start open up the economy again and not delay it because the business, you know, the business industry will suffer. The economy will suffer. There's so much obsession around the economy. Uh, it, it's almost as though we are for the economy rather than the economy being for us. It's actually not, mm, the economy right. is not a real thing. The economy is us. Uh, and we are living creatures who have other needs other than just making money or exchanging and, and engaging in commercial activity. Um, That's right. And that's exactly yeah. what COVID, or even the mental health crisis, as you said, how could we be uh, happy as people if we are constantly in a race towards growth? Uh, because obviously our personal micro models of achievement or career or growth also reflect the macro environment of um, constant, like increasing wealth, uh, increasing assets, increasing production, constantly increasing so if you can earn a million, then you should earn five million, you know, or, you know, and, and, and the higher up the social, the, the economic ranks you are, the bigger your leaps are. Whereas, you know, the people that are not well off, really for them, the leaps are so tiny into, it could even just be affording to buy food every night is, you know. Yeah, that's right. And I think we really need to, we just need to go back to basics, right? What are the first principles of life, really? You know, this idea of, what are the, what, why are we here? You know, what, what is the purpose of living? Um, and it is not to earn a 100K or 150K, you know, job. It's not to like have a house and two cars. And, and it, 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 like we need to have a conversation, a national conversation, a global conversation really around what is the purpose of life? Like what does it mean to live a meaningful life? And I think we would come to answers that are so vastly and wildly disconnected from our current reality uh, that that it wouldn't you know necessitate such a huge rethink. You think about like work, you know this the idea of work. Our time is not our own. We need to radically reduce our working week. You know the, the, this idea that the global economy produces ten times more per person than it did in in 1930. And there were all of these popular ideas, you know, from economists like Keynes and you know even the Flintstones, right? It's in popular culture that the advancement of technology. Um, would result in radically uh, reduced working weeks. No, you know, in like fact, we, it's just we, made we have, it worse. <laughs> right, like eight hour, you know, what were like eight hour, sixteen hour working weeks. And yes, it, it has made it worse. And it's like, 
we deserve to have our time liberated to create space for taking care of each other, for building a better social fabric and, and, and spending time on the creative pursuits that actually make us human, to spend time on the things that make us feel the most human. Um, and uh, we don't have that at the mm. moment. Is there a big push in Australia uh, from groups um, to get a four-day work week going like there is in well, some think, parts of the world? Uh, I think Prime Minister um, Arjun's, uh, you know, recent push or idea at least. Um, in of, New Zealand, yeah. Yes, of, of uh, uh, instituting a four-day working week as a way of bouncing back from COVID-19 in New Zealand has started to catalyse a, a similar conversation in Australia. Um, but frankly, we lack the political leadership on, on both sides of the political spectrum in the, in the AOP for a long time. Well, if, if the government is not doing anything about it, can individuals and um, corporations and even small businesses, what can people do to ensure that come September when the job seeker, um, sorry, job keeper payments stop, um, what can they do to ensure that people are not suddenly falling off a cliff? Uh, for example, there's this fear that people are being kept on as long as there's a government wage subsidy. The minute that stops, people will be laid off. So we're looking yep. at another big issue a few months down the line. What sort of responsibilities do um, companies have uh, towards their workers? And what can they do to ensure a, a better balance of work and life? Well, look, it's going to be a disaster because not only will JobKeeper end, um, the coronavirus supplement that pushed uh, JobSeeker, what is now known as JobSeeker, um, above poverty lines for the first time in decades will also be cut. Uh, and so you'll have a whole bunch of people um, who will no longer be on JobKeeper. Well, JobKeeper won't be a thing. And so you'll have a whole bunch of people who will now be un unemployed and they will be going on to JobSeeker. But you'll also have JobSeeker that will be cut to below poverty levels. So you've got, a, you know, this double whammy. And then you've got a whole bunch of people right now and who have been for months who aren't on JobKeeper, who aren't able to access either JobKeeper or JobSeeker, the 1.1 million people we were talking about before, these temporary visa holders, um, these, these uh, international students, these undocumented workers, uh, these people seeking asylum who are, have been you know, relegated to destitution and poverty and starvation. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, we've got a, uh, we have got a crisis on our hands right now and it's just going to be exacerbated um, come September if JobKeeper uh, is uh, uh, wound back um, and if JobSeeker is not kept at its current level. So, look, what we've got to do is not wait until then. It's, we've got to ramp up the advocacy right now to ensure that the government um, doesn't do these things. And if they do do them, we hold them accountable for pushing hundreds of thousands of more people into poverty um, uh, and, and, and hold them accountable for that um, wild wide-scale, industrial-scale um, uh, abuse of, um, of, uh, of, of people, mm. so economic how, abuse of people. How is democracy in colour? What are you specifically doing um, with regard to this issue? Well, definitely. Uh, all of our campaigning our work has pivoted to uh, responding to COVID and supporting marginalised communities of colour through this. Uh, we're doing a lot of work right now around um, uh, fighting for a wage subsidy for all alongside dozens of other community organisations and unions to ensure that um, every person in this country, including the 1.1 million temporary visa workers, um, has access to life-saving, uh, critical economic support uh, uh, through this crisis. And we've had a few wins uh, across the country with various state governments instituting different economic packages to uh, support 
um, those who have been excluded from federal government assistance. And we've also been focusing on local councils to encourage them to set up uh, both financial and in-kind programs to support, um, again, people who have been excluded from federal packages. And we've had a, a number of wins in that space too. The other big advocacy focus for us has been around establishing um, an information firewall between uh, health professionals and the Department of Home Affairs to ensure that, you know, at the moment, um, if you're an undocumented migrant worker uh, and if you turned up to a hospital um, uh, to, to get checked for, for COVID-19 or because you're exhibiting symptoms, um, you are at risk of um, having your visa checked and then potentially be detained um, and or deported. Uh, and so that obviously creates a positive disincentive uh, for people um, in those situations to get themselves checked. So Absolutely. one that is like a, a rights issue because fundamentally healthcare should be universal and everybody, especially in a global pandemic, should have access to healthcare. But two, it's also just like a public health issue that in the case of a, a, a global pandemic, you don't want 100,000 people, which is roughly how many undocumented workers there are. You don't want 100,000 people hiding themselves away um, uh, when they should be presenting themselves at a hospital if they've got, um, if they're exhibiting symptoms. And, you know, this has been the driver behind many of the second waves that we've seen in other countries. You take Singapore, for example, that yep. at one point in time was the paragon, you know, this, this shining light in the Asia Pacific around um, uh, its response to coronavirus. And it's, uh, you know, now in the midst of a, of a, a terrible uh, second, second wave. wave that's made, mm -hmm. it, made, it, made it a hotspot. And that's because of how it treated its migrant workers. And we're doing the exact same thing to our migrant workers as well. So uh, it's a huge risk. The, the listeners of this podcast are largely 60% women between the ages of 25 and 38. My listeners are very interested in, in the issues that, that we're discussing. So what can they do now that the severe racial inequality in Australia is becoming so apparent that it's plastered on every headline? What can they do to advocate for themselves and for more equality? Yeah, well, firstly, democracy in colour is, 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 you know, a, a small cog in, in, in a broader social change wheel. And uh, there have been dozens of um, fantastic, you know, community organisations and unions that have really stepped up um, in the lack of federal leadership um, to fight for communities that have been um, are left out uh, and to, to um, uh, fight for, you know, a people-centred um, uh, response to COVID-19 and also a people-centred recovery. Um, and so I think it's like really important that when we talk about, you know, when, when we're in the after times um, and we're looking back on this moment and when this moment is no longer the current moment, but it becomes a, you know, a piece of history that we talk about and reflect on and analyse, um, that, uh, uh, you know, we don't let um, this idea that of, of, of uh, you know, the federal government, um, it was them that, that's... Uh, you know, let us out of this response. It's, it was civil society um, and local communities that let us out of this. You know, the, the, all of the mutual aid groups and, and small communities in informal groups, um, not organised, uh, you know, in any particular way, um, stepping up um, uh, because they saw their neighbour in need um, and, and they, they knew, you know, that um, their values compelled them to do something about that. That was the leadership that got us through this crisis. Nothing that, you know, Morrison did. Um, so I don't know, that's, the, that's the first thing. I think the second thing is like, um, you know, to, to answer your question is, is this idea that democracy is not a spectator sport. Um, and, and, you know, we go back to this idea that, uh, um, uh, that democracy, uh, the promise of democracy anyway, is that inequality of resources can be breached by equality of voice. Um, but right now that's been perverted. 
um, and we have the power of civil society and the power of communities um, that are that's, that's disproportionately dwarfed by the power of big business and the power of lobbyists um, uh, and the power of you know billionaires and, and millionaires. Um, and so the only way we can counteract um, uh, that 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 power imbalance um, is by organizing. You know, we need to do with people what the other side does with money. Um, everybody who's listening to this needs to get involved. And, you know, get involved however you want to, um, whether that's in, you know, your, your local community organization, whether it's a service delivery organization, it's a political advocacy organization, whatever, whatever issue um, that you care about, uh, just get involved because democracy doesn't function without you. That's really that's really useful. Thank you. Uh, I think a lot of us don't realize that uh, we are important in our democracy. We don't think about it actively. But well, and that's because we've uh, you know have been told this narrative since birth that yeah. uh, you know politics is not for you, mm. that it's not for everyday people. It's for this specific political and economic elite um, that studies law. You know that works for politicians. You know this is part of this particular class. And that's a narrative that only serves that particular class because when you're disenfranchised, when you think that, you know, your voice doesn't matter, that nothing you do will matter or have, make any difference and so you're not going to do anything at all, that only serves um, uh, the status quo and that only serves our political and economic elite because they get to make decisions. You know, decisions are still being made. Um, they're just being made without you. Uh, we need to get real about self-educating ourselves around how our systems really operate, how our broken structures really operate, who they serve and who they crush, um, uh, you know, which communities our systems crush in order to serve this vested special interest. And then we need to commit ourselves to doing something about it uh, because social change is not inevitable. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, the only way things change is if we get involved. Yeah, and social change is not something that somebody else can just keep fighting for without us participating in it. That's right. Yeah. You know, there is no other person, right? Yeah. It's you. It's, it's us. us. It's yes, us. that's democracy. Um, your passion, your intelligence, your zeal, and your drive is really inspirational. Thank that's you so much <laughs> for you know. Thank you so much for doing the good work that you do. Thanks for coming and talking to me about all of these issues it's it's paramount importance right now oh thanks for having me and i'm really looking forward to working with everyone and you know if you're you're involved in social change right now and you're listening to this keep up the great work and if you're not there's no time well there's no better time than the present uh, to yeah. get involved right now so they can come and um uh, look up the work of democracy in color at democracyincolor.org that's right au yes. oh no it's just democracyincolor.org no dot org. Cool. Um, but, you know, it doesn't have to be democracy colour. There's a whole bunch of great organisations out there on a whole variety of different issues. Um, uh, so find, the point is to, to get involved in whatever thing you care about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Tim. Great. Thank you. Acast powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. Hello all, my name's Al Murray. And I'm James Holland, historian and author. I'm a comedian and I'm obsessed with the Second World War. We both are totally 
Are you one of those people who loves talking about tanks and spitfires and the battle for the beaches? Have you seen Where Eagles Dare six times? Our podcast, We Have Ways of Making You Talk, comes out twice a week. We speak to all the top experts, plus veterans and famous people with a World War II connection. Don't call it World War II, James. Why not? It's not a sequel. It's a war, not a movie. But we love war movies. That's not the point. Anyway, give us a go. We have ways of making you talk wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST, A-cast. 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 A-cast.